Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Well, good evening, historians, or good day, depending on where you are. Welcome to another episode. This week, we will be talking to Craig Jorgensen, um, who actually uh, does uh, have a look a little bit like Brad Pitt, but that's a little joke we had before <laughs> before we came on air. But uh, he has had some TV time, um, maybe not for you know, a, a, an incident or that he'd like to remember all too well. But uh, if you go back to CBS around 1970, you will see uh, his mug there and you can find that on, on YouTube. But he is a writer of both uh, fiction and non-fiction. There are plenty of books out there which you should all go and check out, but he will tell us a little bit more about those. And with that, Yvonne, uh, here we go. We've got uh, Craig Jorgensen and we're really Looking forward to talking to him. Hello, Absolutely. hello, Craig. Hi, Craig. Hello, my friends. Nice to nice to actually speak to you. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. Going through the whole the whole email thing, and you're based over in Washington State. Is that right? I am. I'm I'm in West Seattle, which is God's country. He lives down the block, okay. and uh, you know, Seattle. We don't. It rains. You know, pretty much. Uh, probably weather similar to Ireland, so we Good. don't tan here. We rust. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very very similar. We've been having a nice good spell though. Our our eldest son actually just uh, moved over to Vancouver. It's not too far away. He moved over there four weeks ago with his girlfriend to live. Oh, British British Columbia or Washington? Yeah, There's yeah, British Columbia. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so, BC is wonderful. It's beautiful. It is. Yeah. Oh, I love BC. Yeah, he, he loves us, and he and he's into all the outdoors and things like that. So so oh, so yeah. that's all that's all good. And are you so? Are you a native from there? Did you move there? Where? You know, well, you, well, that's that's uh, now you bring up an interesting point, because when people say, where are you from? My father was in the service for 20 plus years, 24 okay. years. Um, he was from Seattle. My grandparents moved from uh, to Seattle from Washington. My grandfather was a carpenter during World War One. Uh, they came from Montana to Spokane to build houses prior to World War One. He helped build the first J.C. Penney store in Wyoming. Uh, so the early 1900s, or First World War, there was the shipyards here. So as a carpenter, he and his brothers could make a living. So they came to Seattle. They built uh, the interiors of ships. After the war, no more ships. They, uh, he ended up building houses along West Seattle. And so my father grew up in West Seattle. He joined the Coast Guard in the 1930s, uh, right out of high school. And he was on what's called the Bering Sea Patrol, which is the Coast Guard was rescuing the fishermen in the 1930s, he, uh, the photos he had, my father since passed away, but the photos he had, there's no way in hell that I'm going to go up to Alaska in the, in the snow and the ice <laughs> on a ship in the Roiling Sea. It's like, no, thank you. So uh, he, he was in the service. So every three years we moved. I was born in New York and uh, for all of, you know, two days because the Marine Hospital was, a car, was across from uh, where the Coast Guard was stationed. So the army said, well, you're from New York. And I said, no, no, <laughs> my parents and grandparents were from Seattle. And uh, so we, you know, we lived in Japan for three years. Konnichiwa, wa gozaimasu. Uh, lived in uh, Florida, Georgia, uh, California, then back and forth until we finally, my father finally retired, moved back to Seattle. And I love Seattle. Seattle is just beautiful. We have the best rock bands in the world. Yeah, um, <laughs> we have uh, the Sonics. Who, if you, you don't know anything about the Sonics, Dave Davies of the Kinks said he learned his guitar uh, solos from watching listening to the Sonics. We had Merrily Rush and the Turnabouts, Angel of the Morning. We have Queen, um, Queensrÿche. But we have um, just a little bit of everybody. We had Nirvana. Yeah, uh, yeah Because the brains, you can either join a band or sit down and write. Right. <laughs> so I'm not much of a guitar player, so I started writing. And you've been said to say that um, 
writing has become a hobby for you, so you could never give it up. I, it, it's a curse, right? Is uh, anybody who has a hobby that they love, they're cursed. You know, um, um, I actually love it. I, I work full-time jobs to pay the rent, of course, feed the kids and uh, stay, you know, make sure my dog uh, could have a good collar. Um, and I was writing, I wrote for martial arts magazines for about 20, 20 years. I wrote for newspapers, it's freelance, but it's all freelance you can't make a living <laughs> I don't, unless you work for a newspaper that's going to pay you decent wages with uh, with whatnot health benefits which you know here you have to pay for the health benefits yeah i stayed with the government for 25 years um and then wrote every night i'm a night owl so depending if i had night shift and i would write during the day and for weeks on end i would have night shift so you come back and and I had what's called a typewriter. <laughs> and do you actually use a, a typewriter or do you, do you still tap it out on a typewriter or you're using your, your, your laptop? Nah, sir. I, I, I'll tell you right now, Derek, I, uh, uh, I want to find the person who invented Microsoft Word and give him a hug. I put the whiteout uh, company out of business. I had a five gallon bucket of whiteout in a, in a paintbrush. And uh, anybody who's ever typed anything, on, especially if you're trying to sell an article, they said, well, can you revise it? You, you twitch. You know, <laughs> um, I wrote my first book on a, a used portable typewriter. And, um, you know, you start off with 2000 sheets of paper and end up with 250 that you will look at. And by the way, there's not a book that I've written that I wouldn't rewrite. You know, right. I, okay. oh, yeah. but you edit yourself to death. So yeah. write the book, whatever project you do, Finish it, send it off, let it have its own life and go on to the next project. And so tell us, so where did all this inspiration come from? So you mentioned you're, you're, you're a military kid and you know that yeah. in itself will bring its own, I suppose, difficulties and challenges trying to make friends and things like that. Uh, and then you were almost then destined, like I suppose as a child, did you see yourself joining the, the military? Or was oh, of course you did, of course. Yeah, that, that, that was it. Yeah, so, never a question. Um, because uh, in 1960, we were living in San Francisco in a duplex on an army base. Coast Guard didn't have too many housing areas. And the, the couple next to us, the family next to us was a Vietnamese family. So my parents became godparents to their children and, and uh, to one of their daughters. And uh, they would, you know, they would cook their Vietnamese food. We would cook American food. We would share. We went to school with the kids. So when I, I thought when the Vietnam War was happening that those were the people I would be helping. They were good, decent people. And I thought, you know, uh, in America, we're never wrong. Well, yeah, we don't, we don't understand history at all. Thank you for your historians, by the way. Um, <laughs> a better understanding of history might, you know, might have shown us that, that Ho Chi Minh was actually uh, worked for the CIA ancestor in World War II. He was a beloved figure, still is. And he's beloved by the, he was beloved by the South Vietnamese as well. So um, uh, when I got there, I was 18. I joined the army when I was 18. You know, it's like, I'm a, so I'm a soldier now. Popping pimples. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, so I volunteered. I volunteered for the infantry, which is something that uh, when you're 18, it sounds impressive. And then when you get in the mud and the, and the muck, you're going, maybe that was not the smartest idea. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, indeed. But it, it wasn't just the regular infantry now you were destined for, right? You you got into the, the ranger wing. You were on the, the long range. Uh, yeah, I got to Vietnam when I was 19. And um, you, when you land in country, I mean, it's it's a unique experience back then. You got off this plane, all these GIs getting ready to go home are plotting you. They're also insulting you. <laughs> so it's a typical GI banter. Uh, and you may not like it, but get used to it. You're new. You were called an FNG, which is not a funny new guy, by the way. Um, yeah. you, you, they sent you off to a replacement station. At the replacement station, they said, okay, you're in the first Air Cavalry Division. I said, okay, knew nothing about it. You're, you go to the division uh, training area for for three days, they give you the history of the unit. Uh, they give you a plastic wallet. And I said, why a plastic wallet? He says, because all your stuff is going to go to crap uh, if you carry it out in the jungle within days. And uh, then as lurps, we weren't allowed to carry that. <laughs> no ID, nothing. Um, the um, At the replacement station, two guys showed up with fancy berets, you know, spit polished boots, uh, ranger uh, scrolls, and are going, who wants to be rangers? And uh, so 30 of us went to, to listen to their sales talk. It's like buying a car. Right. You go there and you're, you're kicking the tires and, and they're selling it. 
they were, you know, he said, okay, um, you know, what does the Rangers do? What do he says, well, we do long range reconnaissance patrols. And they said, okay, how often do you go out? What are the circumstances? He said, well, you go out with a five or six man team for five days, you come back in for two and go back out for five more. And then half the people in our audience left. They said, I don't want to go out with five people behind the lines. And by the way, there were lines. People say there were no lines in Vietnam. Well, yeah, there were. Yeah, depending on where in the jungles you were, it was all enemy controlled area. We worked along the Cambodian border and uh, North Vietnamese were prevalent. Uh, they were good fighters too. Viet Cong were good fighters, nothing but respect for them, but they were tough. So get back to the, the recruiting aspect. We thought, oh, okay, we, we'll do this. And they were selling us uh, why you don't want to go out with a hundred man infantry company because it makes a lot of noise and the enemy are going to know exactly where you are. As a LERP Ranger in the Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol, LRRP, but bastardized to LERP, L-U-R-P, uh, you go out with five or six people and you're hiding. So you're doing reconnaissance or you're doing prisoner uh, uh, snatch missions or you're, you're tapping into their, their phone lines or whatever. You're noting their, their movement. I, I had a buddy at the second day of graduation. He was assigned to a team after three weeks of training and they had 300 North Vietnamese go by their position at night uh, 300 and they were less than 10 yards away and, and they were on their way to attack a base, uh, base camp, fire support base buttons in Songbay province. So there, there was that aspect. Uh, now going back to the training, they flew us up to Phuc Vinh, which was uh, their headquarters area for the Ranger company. They put us through two and a half weeks of training, <laughs> lots of harassment. We lived in an ugly tent, uh, rats everywhere, a couple, a couple light bulbs uh, to read by, uh, sometimes someone would wake us up with tear gas, throwing it in the tent. Uh, they would wake us up at pre-dawn every morning during the rainy season. They would make us, they issued us this really nice camouflage, uh, fatigues. And then they made us low crawl <laughs> in the mud out to the road where we would grab a 30 pound rucksack to begin a five mile run. So morning uh, pre-dawn was a five mile run around the perimeter of the, of the camp. Uh, you would come back in, you would eat, uh, you didn't get to shower. <laughs> that was a luxury for the actual people. You would go into a training. They, they would train you in uh, Soviet weapons, the use of radio medic procedure, because you wouldn't have your own medic. You were like a firefighter going out in case somebody had you know, trauma until the, the EMT, the emergency medic showed up. They were doing us, uh, uh, giving us what's called a McGuire ring extraction, where a helicopter would drop down, hook you up to a 90 foot rope, Rope is wrapped around. You either had a Swiss seat, which was comfortable. No, 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 that was too easy. They would wrap it around underneath your armpits and they would yank you up and fly you around in circles and you would hit off each other like billiard balls. Um, <laughs> now, uh, and you did that one ride and, and that was a training ride. You, you fired weapons. They, you, you learned how to use close and claymore support anti-personnel uh, mines, where in training you were given a hundred yards. In the LERPs, you were given 25. So you had to angle them off so the backblast would not come in and uh, kill you or the, the 750 ball bearings inside those things. However, when you blow those things up, you still go up and off the ground. You can't hear. So then you go, you finish your training, graduate. They give you a nice beret. The general comes down, shakes your hand, gives you a certificate. You get your patch, your, your ranger scroll, and you're going... <laughs> Because um, we're, we're babies. We're 19, 20 years old. And uh, then you're assigned to a team. Then you go out on your missions. And then you, you realize what you got yourself into. Five or six people behind the lines in enemy-held territory. And you're looking for them. And uh, the jungles of Vietnam along the, the border, keep in mind, you have 2,000 years of war history in that country. The Chinese, the Chams, the Khmers, the French, the Japanese, the French again, before we showed up. So there's bunkers everywhere. There's fighting positions, beautiful things. I love the jungle. The jungle, um, I spent seven years in Florida. So I kind of grew up, I played as a kid in the swamps and uh, and it, you know, it was beautiful. I, I had no problem with it. So I got to Vietnam and we had guys from the city, New York, Chicago, right. Detroit. Um, you'd, you'd be out there, and, you know, at, at night and something would make a noise. They go, what's that? What's that? I go, it, it's a bird. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, for the country boys, uh, we had we had country boys from Texas and, and Oklahoma and in mid America, and they were very comfortable. They if they were, you had hunters, they were used to being out there. Now it didn't take away anything from the bravery of the person at all. 
because you had incredible bravery from from the kids from the inner city, uh, whether Puerto Rican, Mexican, Black, uh, uh, Asian American. And they were just, you know, they were just wonderful people who became friends and would have never socialized otherwise. Uh, so you got to be friends through the common shared experience. And even to this day, we're still friends. That's uh, and I like that. Yeah, well, say you, you couldn't. I mean, that's it. Yeah, it's brothers. It's uh, bond, bonds for life, doing that kind of thing. But I mean, like horrific experiences for. I mean, I know how we've always looked at it. It's like yourself, like babies. Yeah, children going into wars. Yeah. Obviously, you know, as people my age that was given the orders, probably the famous incident. Um, you'll have to introduce our our Irish audience to uh, the famous CBS incident. Incident because oh. that was a horrific experience for 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 all, right? It, it um, yes, I, um, prior to that, a week before, we had a 21-man, when I was with Apache Troop, 1st of the 9th Blues, Blues uh, designated us as infantry, but we had our own platoon of scout small helicopters, we had a platoon of lift UE helicopters, and we had a platoon of Cobra gunships. So um, I thought it was a smart way to fight the war. The, the low bird would go over the treetop looking for people. And if they saw bunkers that we would fly it, we would be flown in. And then we would move into the, 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 the enemy occupied areas. Um, and because the low bird was making helicopters make so much noise, the Vietnamese would stay down in the bunkers because they didn't want to show themselves because you could, you know, artillery support or whatever. And uh, so we would we had literally snuck inside an occupied an occupied bunker complex, and it uh, it turned out to be an enemy battalion, and we had twenty one people. Wow! That was the week before I got shot. When the helicopters flew away, we heard they started coming out of the bunkers, and there were people everywhere. Um, it was literally close to hand to hand fighting. It was shooting. Uh, you were shooting people 10, 10 feet away, twenty feet away, but because we were inside their bunker complex, their fighting positions faced out. So right. we were pretty much in the center of the thing. And so they had to put their weapons or RPG rocket launchers or big heavy machine guns. They had to get them out of the bunkers to fire on us. So when they would put them out, they would pop up. Well, you'd shoot somebody. Uh, next person would come up. You'd shoot. They had a, they'd try a ground attack. But because it was jungle and trees, they had no straight run at us. So we literally um, were in an all-day firefight. We had an infantry platoon come in to help us. We got surrounded again. Uh, I think four of us were lightly wounded. I got a concussion, some shrapnel. My best friend, Ed Beal, another ranger, was uh, he got grazed by a bullet on his head, which sent blood everywhere. It looked like he was dying. And uh, you grab it, and he was like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, because we're still shooting people, trying to bayonet us. And um, he, he, it's uh, we call it the day we all should have died. But because of the gunship, because we had a great lieutenant, we knew how to read a map. And because we had our own gunships available, uh, they flew, they were constantly doing support, keeping the main body of them away. So when we finally got out of there, it was like, okay, what the hell just happened? Um, I compare it. Uh, I, I, by the way, I watched the, the what is Jaddockville and the Irish and, oh, yeah. and Africa. And I love that movie because it's typical of the military. What can go wrong will go wrong. When we made it out of there, we were all quiet and very humble. You're very, you're still shaking as from that activity. Um, now this was about in, there's a small region in Tainan province called the Dog's Head. And if you look at a map, it's shaped like the face of a canine facing Cambodia. And that is where a fire support base, Illingsworth, was, was established. And this is important because that week we were doing recon in that area. One week later, they send us back in. <laughs> To another area around there. Ed Beale and I, we, we were the point man. We did a, a split point for the platoon and we found trenches, we found machine gun pits and fresh footprints, dropped equipment. Now, because we were close to the Cambodian border and they knew we couldn't cross the border, uh, often what would happen, they would go back into the border. They would avoid a fight because they were smart. Vietnamese, don't take anything away from them. They were They were pretty good tacticians. Uh, only this time they were they were staying. We, we found uh, Ed and I asked Ed asked the lieutenant if he if Ed and I could stay behind to find out who would be following us in because we knew we were they were there we knew we were, they were going to track us in. So often what would happen is when the platoon would move in, there would be a blocking force. They would set up machine guns and then another group would hit you. And then as you tried to retreat, they would attack you again. 
And the lieutenant said, no, he didn't want to separate uh, us from the platoon. Probably smart. <laughs> I got to give him thanks for that because we, we probably would have been missing in action. Um, then a friend of mine, Dennis Henderson, was walking point at the time. Uh, the helicopter was flying ahead of us, and we were listening to the radio. And they said, we have massive movement out here uh, about a quarter of a mile in front of you. So the lieutenant says, uh, and he says, okay, we're going to turn around. We're going to take another way out. And Dennis, who was uh, walking point, he says, uh, he told me, he says, I'm missing some bunkers and fighting positions. Would it be okay if you walk point? I said, sure, no problem. So I took over for him. And we did not come in. The news report says, you know, we came in one way and we went back out. No, we, we did not use the same trail. You never do that. But there's so many trails and paths around bunker complex and going back to a clearing that would fit the helicopters that we were taking another route. And um, I was walking point. I had a new guy who was walking behind me as a slack man and he's your cover man. But uh, I was probably five yards ahead, maybe moving too fast. I don't blame him. Um, I, and I saw a side trail and there were footprints uh, across it that were North Vietnamese. It, I was looking at the trail we came in on just to our right. And there were cross footprints on it, like, oh, crap, they're here. And a guy screamed, and he was no more than 10 feet in front of me, probably to your back wall. I think what saved me, they were setting up maybe an ambush. He screamed, shot me. I got shot in the right leg. Uh, I, I shot him. I didn't, did not notice the other people behind them because you're, you're focused only on <laughs> the flashes that are coming at you. It's like, you know, you're taught in the military, keep that weapon pointed downrange. So it was pointed right at me. It hit my right leg, knocked me down. I shot him. He went down and then there was more machine gun fire. They, the Vietnamese thought they killed me. Our platoon thought I was down. So they were firing at each other. Now I, I needed a place. Uh, uh, my, my right front thigh popped out. It was like a bad water balloon. It popped up. I pushed it down. It's but popped up again. And I realized I need to find a cover of a tree or something. So I expended all my ammunition firing at the guy. Well, if your weapon is facing this way, as you turn to fire, you're shooting over here. So probably half my round, I probably killed some trees. So, um, so by the time I shot that guy um, and, uh, and all you want to do is stop the threat. You just don't want to get shot again. And I was down on my butt that I, I never realized what it was like to be shot with an AK 47. I do now. Yeah. <laughs> it, it literally just knocked me down. I found a tree. I thought, okay, I'm going to try to crawl for the tree. I started towards the tr tree. Then they threw a grenade at me. Well, you can't throw grenades in a jungle. You can't. They bounce off like a billiard ball. So, I mean, it hit trees and, and shrapnel is going everywhere. But the Vietnamese grenades were like potato mashers. So they're real small. They weren't designed to kill you. They were designed to injure you because that required two more people to carry you out. So that was a, actually a smart design. Uh, our Vietnamese scout who I'd worked with, he ran in front of me and started firing and gave me time to crawl behind what I thought was the biggest, best tree I ever found. So I got behind the tree and then um, I took off my first aid bandage, wrapped it over, tried to uh, wrap it over my, uh, my front thigh that was popped out and it wasn't big enough. So I took off my shirt and I tied my shirt around and used the sleeves as a bandage. And then the medic came rushing up and then they show the medic saying, you know, who's injured? Give me some cover. He comes running up. Now he had this wonderful New Jersey accent. You know, you guys think you have accents? No, no. Listen to Jersey in New York. It's hilarious. And uh, give me some cover. No, you know, no R's in there. A-H. Um, so he came running up, put a nice bandage on my right thigh. And then we noticed I was bleeding heavily uh, out of the left. So I ripped out the back and the back of my left thigh, my hamstring fell out. And, um, uh, I had seen a guy get shot through the thighs and he couldn't feel his toes. So I was banging on my toes with my M16. I could feel the pain. So I thought, okay, this is good. It missed the femoral artery by a fraction. So had it hit the femoral artery, I would have been dead uh, before anybody, the helicopter could have got in and pulled me out. So the medic gave me a shot of morphine. Now, what does morphine do? <laughs> it makes you invincible. <laughs> so I was a sergeant. The medic says, okay, I'm going to carry you back. And I said, like, hell you are. I said, if you try to carry me back, we're both going to get shot. I don't want to get shot again. I said, you go, I'll make it back. Um, 
he was a wonderful medic. God bless. Bravest, bravest people on any battlefield. It's not John Wayne's. It's not Audie Murphy's. It's, it's your medics and the best people are the nurses and the doctors in the field hospitals. They see horrific, they see horrific aspects of war that we just don't see. So anyhow, so I think I can get up and run. So I take two, two steps and fall right on my face. <laughs> my legs didn't work. Uh, Dennis Henderson, the guy I was walking a point for, ran up, scooped me up and carried me back. So when the, the uh, CBS people st- were sticking the microphone in, in your face, I might have swore a couple of times. They clipped that out. He, one of the questions like, what was it like? What did it feel like to get shot? And I thought might have said, well, what the fuck do you think? Yeah. <laughs> and, and they, of course, they clipped that part out. Um, I was making jokes because I had a shot of morphine. And morphine, it's like, oh, okay, it doesn't hurt now. It's like, oh, I can push the muscle back in and pop back out. It's a water balloon. Uh, the lieutenant was in her, you know, saying, hey, where are you? What did you see? So the microphone, they had three people, a cameraman, a, a um, uh, the news uh, interviewer, and a sound guy, a Vietnamese sound guy. And so they were sticking the sound in one face and then the microphone in the other. I really don't know what I said. You know, you're basically high on morphine. You're you're scared. Uh, you've just been shot. You're bleeding. Uh, you still don't know if you're going to get out of there. Um, then the helicopter came in and they dropped a, a jungle penetrator. They pulled me up. The helicopter took four rounds. They got shot at. Uh, God bless those medics. They got me into a field hospital, got me into emergency surgery. Um, and I did not know it, uh, they were, it was filmed for television. I, I knew nothing about that. That came later. One of the funny things was it said, and a one-way ticket out of the Vietnam War. No, I was in the hospital. I got sent to another hospital. And then I foolishly volunteered to go back to my unit. Um, nice. When you're, I had just turned 20 uh, the month before. And, you know, it's, uh, it, there's another, there's a guilt feeling. You don't want to leave your buddies. Yeah. And it's the worst thing I think the military did to troops in Vietnam is they sent you to Vietnam uh, later in the war individually. So your tour of duty didn't end with your friends. So you were leave, constantly leaving good people behind. Right. And uh, if you go over as a unit, you come back as a unit, you have that cohesion. And um, so, yeah, I volunteered to go back to my unit and ended up on some some more stuff. Now, um, the day I got shot, 19th of March is when we ran into the battalion and we had an all-day firefight. And we were fortunate to survive that. Uh, on March 25th, I was shot in both legs. Six day later, uh, six days later, fire support base Illingsworth was overrun. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, like 54 GIs were killed or something. Um, tremendous amount of wounded. Um, a uh, Peter Lemon <clears throat> earned the Medal of Honor uh, at that event. That place was just filled with North Vietnamese soldiers. This became has, uh, more uh, prevalent and understood when in May, uh, we were allowed to go into Cambodia. And when they went into Cambodia, <laughs> I made it back in, in time for that as well. There was, my goodness, uh, the North Vietnamese and the Cosvin headquarters, the, the communist uh, headquarters section there, they had cities. I mean, it was underground bunkers. They had Volkswagens, motorcycles, banks. Uh, we came back with, you know, uh, you name it. We found it. We found muskets. We found, you know, incredible caches of weapons, explosives, Um so, I mean, it was an interesting thing. The, the Royal Cambodian Army couldn't stop the Vietnamese. They were too powerful. And so that area was just turned over to the Vietnamese, and, and rightfully so. Um, yeah, so now I'm in the hospital. It's not too many people there. And then the next thing I know, uh, one week later, there's a flood of dozens and dozens of these injured guys off fire support base Ellingsworth. And the field hospitals are scary, scary places. Uh, I mean, it's if it, war is always pretty in movies, it is never pretty in reality. And to watch young kids who have lost limbs, uh, who have lost faces, who have badly burned. I mean, it's uh, uh, the, this kid next to me. I think he was shot 19 or no, maybe nine times. And he was shot all the way from his ankles all the way up to his, you know, missed his head. But he cried every night. I mean, the poor kid was just in, in a horrible thing. Uh, two beds down from me, a kid, he got his jaw shot off and he was breathing through a disc. And I was more afraid of the hospital than I was of the jungle. So uh, when I volunteered to go back, um, I, I, I thought, you know, 
God bless these nurses and medics, but I'm, I'm not brave enough to be here. Those were the brave people. Uh, okay. So, but yeah, then came back and finished my tour of duty. And, and uh, then I found out uh, when I came back to my unit that there were the CBS film, because I started getting hate mail. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, uh, I'd never seen this thing. Never, uh, you know, maybe heard flashes of it, but uh, I'd, I'd never seen it. So, you know, someone says, oh, you got fan mail. And I thought, okay, what the heck is fan mail? By the way, when I got back to my unit, my first sergeant, he goes, what are you here? What are you doing here? I sent your stuff home. <laughs> and uh, yeah, damn it. He just sent my, my uh, I, I kept notes and stuff and I had uh, flags and all kinds of stuff that we'd captured. And I had, more importantly, I had Playboy magazine. <laughs> so I lost my February issue of Playboy magazine. There's, there was just, that's, that's a terrible crime. Um, but uh, so they sent my stuff home. I lost it. Uh, there was a guy in my hooch. And uh, so I didn't even have a place to stay. When I came back, I kicked him out. He was a new guy. And, um, and I said, no, this, it took me months just to get that real thin mattress. So I said, I'm, I had a, a mattress on, on uh, rocket boxes. I said, okay. that's mine. I'm, I'm back. Uh, so yeah, then you're back in the jungle, then back in the unit. Um, and then, as I said, I got these letters and, and I understand it. There was people who were against the war and, yeah. it, and after Cambodia, there was a lot of people against the war. And so I had one letter that said, uh, saw you get shot on uh, television. I hope you lose your legs. The war is wrong. I, I took, I took all the letters and threw them in a, we, we'd have to burn shit in barrels every morning. So I tossed those in that. It's like, nah, yeah. I don't care. Um, because people would either say, oh, you've done really well, or you're, you know, or you're criminal or whatever. And it doesn't matter because these are people you don't know. They don't know you. Yeah. Uh, your buddies yeah. know, and your buddies appreciate what you do. Um, as I said, I worked with a great South Vietnamese scout and he, he made Daniel Boone look like a piker. I mean, nice. this guy, was, uh, God bless him. He taught us how to survive and uh, okay. was just a brave man. Yeah. Was it hard to readjust then when you got home? I mean, was it? Oh, was yeah. It hard? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 It's uh, because I still couldn't drink a beer legally. You know, <laughs> you, you, you come home. Right, you're 20 years old. Oh. Yeah. My father yeah. one, My father was in the hospital. He had fallen off a ladder. He was painting the house. And I think he might have had a few beers at the time, but he fell off, broke his jaw, broke some ribs. My mom was a nurse. She was working at the hospital. Uh, my sister was at school. Uh, they got a puppy when I left. The door was locked, so I snuck in through the kitchen window, and the dog was chewing on, on my pant leg as I was going through the window. And I thought, oh, okay, welcome home. Um, but yeah, and then you know, in in the army, you could drink a beer, and you get home, and suddenly people say, well, you're not 21, and you can't have you can't legally have a beer. And I thought, well, okay. I had like nine months to finish in my my service obligation because I enlisted. So they sent me close to home. They saw my birth records. I was born in New York, Staten Island. So they sent me to Fort Dix, New Jersey, on the opposite side of the you know, United States. So I reported into Fort Dix, and I said, uh, why am I here? I have a fort less than an hour from my home in Seattle. And they said, well, yeah, but you're from you. Where are you from? I said, Washington. He goes, oh, yeah, you know, that's just down the road. I said, no, the state. And he looked yeah. at me what are you a logger? <laughs> so, but it was a wonderful experience. I got to see, um, I got to see some great bands back in the day. You know, oh, you're yeah, still yeah. young. So we got yeah. into Philadelphia. We got to see, you know, uh, stylistics, uh, Delphonics, a little bit, everybody great bands down the Jersey coast. And that's when Bruce Springsteen was pretty much starting out. So mm -hmm. you got to see uh, and got into New York city, uh, went to the Fillmore East and saw Santana live. So, right. I mean, it's back then you could, you know, you're five feet away yeah. and, uh, and it was like, you, you know, you're only paying $5 to get in. So it was wonderful. <laughs> so I, I was glad to see that I got out of the army and, uh, wasn't sure what I would do and hitchhiked through Europe as a hippie because. Oh, did you? Fun. Oh, wow. What years of that? The right mid, mid 1970s, was it? Did you do that? Uh, yeah, I, I got out in the end of 1970, uh, early 1971. So hitchhiked through Europe for a while and, and never do that again. Right. You know, I slept yeah. in old deserted castles. And if you have a sleeping bag that gets wet, it's no fun. No. I mean, <laughs> you'd sleep in train stations. And, you know, the Swiss people would, or Germans would walk by you, look at you on your way to work. And, you know, yeah. basically you're nothing but a homeless person going through yeah. there. Yeah. But we had rail passes, so we were good. Uh, yeah. 
But I loved it. I loved you. It was the first chance to see Europe. You know, yeah. uh, as a military kid, you never, you were in always in obscure places and forts where, you know, I have always wanted to see the Eiffel Tower, always wanted to go down the Moselle Valley. I wanted to go down the Black Forest. So um, I re-enlisted in the Army, went to Germany. And then every weekend I would go take trips. I would just get on a train, grab a rucksack and go. And it was wonderful. It, uh, okay. I'm really glad I chance to okay. do that. Now, my, my mom was Irish-Lithuanian. <laughs> so she, oh, was, uh, she grew up in Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. She grew up in Massachusetts. So we have this weird accent. My dad was from Seattle, so we have no accent there. And we live mostly down south. I have a brother who sounds like, you know, uh, just a southern gentleman. <laughs> and then my okay. mom's house on this Massachusetts thing. So they'd get together, and it was hilarious to People are looking at this. I don't understand your family. I said, well, that's because your family. None of us do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I re-enlisted. And then I, I got out. I got to be a journalist because I got in trouble. So the special forces colonel, he looked at me and he said, okay. Uh, he goes, I don't want to. He, he would, I could have gotten an honorable discharge out of the army, but I didn't want, you know, he says, ah, stay in. He says, I need a journalist. If you, you think you can, you know, I said, well, I'd like to give it a try. Yeah. Best job I ever had. So for three and a half years, I wrote for army newspapers, German newspapers, uh, okay. army magazines. I did cartoons for the Army Times because the stuff I got in trouble for saying to a sergeant, uh, a master sergeant, the Army Times would pay me $15 per cartoon saying the same thing. <laughs> so, uh, and yeah, is this, is this when your writing career started? It, it, it was a curse. You know, it's a, uh, I would spend a lot of money on books. I would go to the bookstore and uh, go to the library. And army libraries are wonderful because they have every book imaginable. I started taking night courses. I wanted to be a writer. My dad was a good writer. And uh, I said, okay, dad, what's the secret to writing? He says, uh, read good books and write. And I thought, what the hell does he know? You know. So I went to college to learn at night, the secret. And the secret still is read good books and write. <laughs> if you're not a reader, you're not a writer. And, uh, and writing is just a matter of anything else. Whatever hobby you have, you can only become good at it if you stay at it and work at it and uh, and love it. <clears throat> I used to collect rejection letters. Rod Serling, the Twilight Zone uh, writer, and he wrote a great uh, uh, book called Requiem for a Heavyweight, and they turned it into a, a wonderful screenplay. When he got out of the Army from World War II, he said he was going to get 100 rejection slips before he would give up writing. And that he sold his first article at nine on his 99th rejection. And I thought, I can give it 100. So I would, uh, it, it, I had a, a cork board at, at work in the office. We were in the basement in, in this concern in Germany. Nobody cares about journalists. You know? <laughs> we're down in some sub basement and you had a typewriter. So I had a cork board. So I would send short stories out, articles out, and they'd get rejected. So I didn't care. I got rejected by. Playboy. I got rejected by uh, every literary magazine out there until one day I got accepted. And back then you had to send a self-addressed stamped envelope with your submission. I was constantly used to getting them sent back. And, and, and I looked at the handwriting. My handwriting is horrible, by the way. So I looked at the self-addressed envelope that I, that I had addressed. And I thought, oh, it's another rejection slip. I'll look at it later. Forgot about it. Got a letter from uh, this literary magazine saying, hey, you need to sign the contract. And I went, excuse me? <laughs> so I, I got a short story published and I got some humorous poems uh, published. And I thought, I want to be a writer. Then you realize they don't pay. <laughs> it's you get copies of the magazine. And it's kind of like, uh, look, I'm in this publication. And I said, yeah, that'll still be 20 cents for a cup of coffee. It's like, yeah, but <laughs> you don't know who I am. <laughs> no, we don't care. When I got out of the service, I got a job as a script writer for a production company. And we just did uh, training videos for every everybody, uh, beer companies for Nordstrom's, you know, local companies, Kenworth Truck Company, because back then nobody had their in 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 house PR people. Okay. So we we'd write training presentations, and I did that for a few years, and I was still freelancing. And I started writing. I I've been in the martial arts for about fifty years, and I realized that paper cuts don't hurt as much as broken noses. Yeah, right. <laughs> if I write. These articles, I ended up being an assistant editor, um, contributing editor for Taekwondo Times. I did uh, contributing editor to Inside Kung Fu magazine. I wrote for all the martial arts magazines. And uh, I I knew some wonderful martial arts artists from, uh, we would compete up in Canada. That's why I love British Columbia. 
There's okay. some great martial artists out there, some very talented people. And I thought, nobody knows about these people because the magazines are in New York and Los Angeles. Yeah. So um, I started writing article about Kung Fu instructors, uh, Taekwondo instructors, uh, a little bit everybody. And they started buying the, you know, they started buying the articles. I thought, well, they'll buy one. <laughs> so I just kept sending them off. So I thought, okay, I'm going to sell a hundred articles and then I'm going to try something else. So uh, I sold over the years, uh, over a hundred articles to them. I was doing newspaper stuff. I was still uh, getting short stories published, nothing big, nothing fancy. Yeah. And then I sat down uh, to write the, the book, Acceptable Loss. Uh, you're always haunted by war. War is always in the back. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, what am I going to do? I, I thought, okay, I had a, a typewriter. I had a job. I needed to, to work this out. And I was going through a divorce at the time because the uh, wonderful thing about being a, a combat veteran is that you're an asshole for a long time. You, you, you tend uh, to fall back into yourself. You're constantly depressed. If you drink, that doesn't help. So, you, you know, it's not good for relationships. And after I was divorced, I thought, okay, um, I got to still got to take care of my kids. I still have to, uh, responsibilities. And I had plenty of time to sit in this small apartment I had, <laughs> well, one bedroom apartment. So I would type every night. I didn't have an agent. I didn't know anything about the business. So I finished this manuscript, boxed up, sent it to New York and came back two weeks later, rejected. And it's like, uh, that they don't read unsolicited manuscripts. And I thought, well, I solicited it. <laughs> yeah. The big man is that you didn't have an agent. Sent it off to a second a large book company and um, it got rejected. A month later, it got rejected. It's like, okay. And, you know, and your friends, I have friends and we all have friends who screw with us from time to time. And uh, so I, back then I had an answering machine. I had to have an answering machine for work in case they called me in. I was working crazy hours with the job I had. And you sometimes you'd, you know, you'd finish an eight-hour shift and then they'd want you for eight hours more. So and when you're, and I was in Customs and Border Protection, so you could end up at the border up north. You could end up, God knows, I uh, checking ships in the middle of Puget Sound in the rain, <laughs> which yeah. is ah, nice. wonderful. Yeah. And I send it the third one. And then I come home from work one day and my answer machine and it said, yeah, this is such and such from Random House. You know, we're very interested in your book. And I went, <laughs> and they had a phone number. And so I called my buddies up and I said, quit screwing with me. This is not funny. And they go, don't, I didn't, I didn't call you. It was, you know, so I called the number and it was New York and they said Random House. And I immediately hung up because then I was scared. I was like, Holy crap. Fear of failure never bothered me. Fear of success scared the hell out of me. It, um, um, and then I thought, they're going to buy my book. Uh, so I called them up and they said, yeah, we're going to send you a contract. And you know, it's like, oh, crap. Now we need a lawyer to look it over because I, you know, it's 17 page contract. Had no idea about. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought I was going to quit my job, go on Oprah. Oprah was going to love me. I was going to <laughs> tour the world. And then uh, another writer who wrote his books for the same uh, company was a 101st alert, Gary Linderer. Gary Linderer called me up and said, uh, hey, Hoss, let me tell you what they're not going to do for you. And then by, by the end of the phone call, I realized I'm going to keep my job. I'm not going to chew my boss out. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to go back to work. Uh, it, it, it's like record companies back in the 50s. You don't make, you don't make squat on what you produce, um, unless you're a big name writer. So the editor we had, I think he had like 90 writers or something. And the top five, everybody recognizes they're the world class. And we were probably the lower group down, you know, doing the military writing. Uh, but back in the day, they actually had what's called, uh, I don't know if you heard this term, bookstores. <laughs> so they had bookstores everywhere. So you could go to a mall, there would be B. Walden's or B. Uh, B. Dalton or Walden Books. And this was prior to Amazon. You could find your books there. So I would go find my book, pull it out from the bottom and find the number seven bestseller. And I would put it up on the number seven bestseller because <laughs> nobody knows who those are. By the way, those companies pay for those racks. I didn't know that either. Right. So placement in, in bookstores is everything as well. And then, then you just realize, okay, uh, you wrote one book and then you get contacted by your buddies going, well, why didn't you write about this? So I thought, okay, I'll do a second book. And that led to a couple more. It turned out to be enough money to get my kids braces. <laughs> And and uh, take a couple small vacations. Uh, never, never big. It was never that big. 
My goal right now is, is to become a famous writer so I can have a car that doesn't leak oil. That's my Okay. Goal. You're going electric. Okay. I, I have real goals. Yeah. <laughs> and it's um, obviously, it's, uh, it's the martial arts that have kept you looking young, I, I imagine, is it? Yeah, well, the, the, now in, in the writing, I discovered I, um, it, it doesn't matter what age you are, you can still keep writing. You know, I'm, I'm a geezer now, I'm in my 70s, and uh, I, I still enjoy, I'm still late, uh, three o'clock in the morning writing. Okay. And, uh, and then the next morning, drink over a cup of coffee, looking at it going, well, that's crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting better, but I'm, I, should be, I should be a really competent writer two years after I die. So yeah. okay, okay. Before we uh, let you go, as a man who has served in, in one war, and to look at the big picture, you know, how do you feel now about you know the road America has gone with the war, the, the long wars? That must have been terrible to bear witness to, I'd imagine, for for someone who had served. My daughter, my daughter was in the Air Force, and she was in Afghanistan, okay. Iraq, and Syria. Okay. I was scared shit the entire yeah. time that she was there. I would hope that they would send every politician to a war zone, to the front lines where their offices would have to be. Yeah. I would like the president and all the Congress to be in a frontline base. And I guarantee you wars would be over real quickly after that. I don't have much good to say about politicians of either. Uh, it doesn't matter what the party is. I think there are good people, but I also think there yeah. are very many opportunists. Um, I think there are wars that are justified and there are wars that are unjustified. My goal now is to go back to Vietnam, hopefully find the guy that shot me and buy him a beer for being a lousy shot. Okay. You know, um, <laughs> I think soldiers, it doesn't matter what army you're in, um, you know, it, you're fighting for what you're, you're, you believe that the politicians are telling you yeah. and you're there to do a good job. So many people will blame the soldiers for the war. No, it's the soldiers are the, are the fools. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I've got nothing but respect for those who um, who go to wars. I, I think there are some good, decent people. There are also some horrible people, and they yeah. should be held accountable. Yeah. But uh, I I don't want to go looking for another fight. My goal is that if a fight comes here, I'd be more than happy to fight. But yeah. uh, for looking for causes that are vague or later find out were not true, I yeah. – um, and then I understood what my parents went through with yeah. my daughter. She was yeah. over there. Um, she she had a very she was an intelligence analyst for special operations so Good. she was in some horrible areas but she could never tell me and and finally she re, she retired out of the service at the ripe old age of 40 and i i i laugh at her when she, when she was in basic training you know she would call me up at work and she'd go dad guess what i'm working on i said what and she goes oh that's right you don't have a top secret clearance i can't tell you and I, said, oh. <laughs> and I said, honey, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, that you're in the Air Force because someone needs to make them in coffee. <laughs> and then she started swearing that started over here and the swear word ended over here. But uh, when she was in the war zones, I was frightened. I was very frightened. I understand what the parents go through. I, I, it made me appreciate more and more what my parents had went through because they would get the telegrams. Your son is wounded. Your son is wounded. And yeah. unfortunately, I got wounded on near my father's birthday and near my mother's birthday. Oh, dear. So it's like, it's a hell of a present to give to your parents. But yeah. you know what? Um, I would tell everybody, if you want to write, write. And historians, God bless you. Uh, history is a wonderful <laughs> thing. Give us a couple more titles. You mentioned a few of them there. But give, give, give oh, I've got uh, uh, Chasing Romeo. I, I've been told I have a bad sense of humor, and apparently it comes out. This one okay. is one of my favorite ones. Um, I wrote a book on American Civil War. I did one called The Next Mirage on the CIA, which is all what can go wrong with the, the secret people in, in Afghanistan yeah. fighting the Russians. It's a comedy. I, I, I love dark humor. Okay. Um, the Belly of the Beast. Do, do bomb dogs dream of chasing butterflies? And if you ever had an opportunity to work with a dog, it's a wonderful experience. Dogs are love you. They're more loyal than anybody you'll ever find. And uh, they don't complain, you know. <laughs> uh, my, my wife's in love with a cockapoo. So there you go. That's, uh, he, he, he shares our bed. <laughs> yeah, it's well, we, we have a, a golden lab uh, retriever mix and I, he takes my side of the bed. He loves my wife, but he loves my side of the bed. You know, it's like, I'm... yeah, yeah. That's the same here. Yeah. Same. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
<laughs> well, uh, very. It's a pleasure yeah. meeting you officially, and it's. Yeah. I love the work that you're doing. History is a, is a wonderful thing, and the more we know of it, the better off we are as a group, as a people. Absolutely, absolutely, sure, yeah. fantastic. Well, listen, thank you very much, listeners. Go and check out some of uh, Craig's books. They're well worth the read. Thank you, Craig. <laughs> thank you very much. Appreciate it. Take care now. Well, Yvonne, yeah, that was like uh, full color. That was video uh, as far as his experiences in, in, in Vietnam go, right? Well, he's incredible. Like, yeah. you know, just he's lively character. very lively, very entertaining, yeah. very funny. Like, the, you know, uh, I know our audience can't see him, but he's just so animated. He is a cartoon character, isn't he? You know, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, I actually I'm very drawn to reading his book, uh, Acceptable Loss. Right. I know that's one of his more serious books and I've yeah, read reviews on the other yeah, ones. Yeah. It's, it's his nonfiction. I've read the reviews and a lot of his readers would say how funny he is. Acceptable Loss is uh, is not one of his funny ones. Yeah, sure. But okay. definitely as a book that I would learn a lot about Vietnam War. The Vietnam War, horrific, cruel, one of the worst wars, you know, that... I, I, I've definitely avoided learning more about because it is, it's one of these events in world history that it's just too much, you know, yeah. um, from massacres of, of children and what was the name of that? Uh, My Lie. My Lie, yeah. Yeah. You know, as, as he, he was saying, like, the Americans had no right to be there. Why did they go there? Yeah, he, he wouldn't have understood that himself, though. At the time, no, he would yeah. have went there willingly. Yeah, so of course, he was 20, he was yeah, 19. Yeah. And he's, uh, his parents, he wasn't drafted, I suppose. Yeah, he wasn't. He, he went voluntarily. Yeah. That's because he grew up. Yeah, military home. Yeah, yeah. third generation yeah. Uh, in, in the military. And it's yeah. what he would have grown up with. So it's like if your dad's a carpenter. You oh, of course, yeah, yeah. A carpenter and my... Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, he became a long range reconnaissance uh, army ranger yeah. and uh, yeah, paid a price for it too, you know. Yeah. So that's it. But I did, I did watch that uh, clip the other night on YouTube. Oh, very good. Yeah, CBS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check it out, folks. And on that note, anyhow, um, thank you very much for tuning in again. Next week, we'll be bringing you another exciting episode. So do please tune in and thank you for your support so far. Take it easy, folks. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here